You may think you know the Museum of Flight, but do you really? Most museums have about 1% of their collection on display at any time. In this four-episode mini-series of The Flight Deck, we'll be looking at the extremes of our collection, four artifacts that tell amazing stories and stand out in unique ways. It was uh, an absolute joy to track down this little mystery from our, our collection. Over the course of these episodes, we'll go behind the scenes at the Museum of Flight's collection. We've got a lot of rare and unique materials that you won't find anywhere else. To explore our smallest artifact. I kind of laugh because when they were like, yeah, it's, it's really small. And I'm like, well, how small could it be? Our biggest artifact. It's the heart and soul of the museum and our campus, in my mind. Our youngest artifact. It's intended to open the door to space tourism. And our oldest artifact. I see an item that is in pretty darn good shape, even considering its age. Along the way, we'll talk to the Museum of Flight's experts about how they take care of all the stuff we have. When I tell people that I'm the director of collections, people usually think that means that I spend my days asking for money, that I am a debt collector. And bring in voices from outside the museum to help peel back the layers of these artifacts' stories. We get a chance to fly items that are just solely ours to then return to people when I got back so that they would have like this memorabilia that went to space. I'm your host, Sean Mobley, and this is the Museum of Flight's collection. This is your collection. Curious yet? Then let's get started. Most people's idea of the first person to fly is this vague notion of the Wright brothers. And sure, Orville Wright took the Wright Flyer to the skies in December 1903, becoming the first person to successfully fly a heavier-than-air powered machine. But the first to fly? Well, flight goes back centuries. The Wrights themselves had been corresponding with and building off the work of Octave Chanute, who had been tinkering with gliders heavier than aircraft with no engine since the late 1800s. The roots of flight go back even further. As far back as the 7th century, we find reports from China of the emperor tethering people to massive kites and lifting them up into the air as a form of punishment. While the oldest artifact in the Museum of Flight's collection is not quite that old, it literally tells the story of the French origin of modern aviation. Rien ne peut égaler la joie qui s'empara de moi lorsque je sentis que je fuyais la terre. On today's episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight, we conclude a four-part mini-series investigating the extremes of our collection. The smallest artifact, the largest artifact, the youngest artifact, and the oldest artifact at the Museum of Flight. To find our oldest artifact, we need to go back behind the scenes, deep into our library, into the rare book room, to find an object that is not on display. The Harvey Bracken Library is part of the, the collections department here at the museum, which of course includes our objects team as well as our archives. Chris Stanton is the Museum of Flight's supervisory librarian. The, the largest aerospace uh, libraries in the country, second only to maybe the Smithsonian, the National Air and Space Museum, certainly the largest west of the Mississippi. The Museum of Flight's library has a number of incredibly rare, even one-of-a-kind objects in the collection that make an aviation geek giddy. 
a big kind of whoa moment from researchers or folks who are looking at is a DC-1 manual. I have volunteers in the library who would, who would say that that's the most important aircraft that's ever been built, the start of the line that included the DC-3 transport uh, as well. Um, but only one DC-1 was built, and we have a manual for, for that aircraft, an original manual. If thumbing through the instruction manual for a 70-year-old airplane doesn't interest you, maybe good old-fashioned gossip's more your thing. One other area that I'm trying to highlight a little bit more is our newsletter collection. But we see a lot of value, particularly in the, the kind of World War II um, associations that were formed from different squadrons or bomber groups and that sort of thing that kind of kept up with one another over the years. That's a wealth of information on those units because a lot of them include histories and, and interviews and, and kind of what they're up to and what they were up to during the war that, that you don't get elsewhere, maybe outside of oral histories, those stories that are, that are just mind boggling that you can't get you can't get anywhere else unless you've got friends talking about it or reminiscing about it. And that's really what you get with those with a newsletter collection. But none of these things, interesting though they may be, are our quarry for today. The oldest item that we have in the library collection is a ballooning title published in 1784 in Paris. The English translation is The Art of Traveling in the Air, L'Art de, de Voyager dans, le, dans les Airs, in really terrible uh, French. The book is called L'Art de Voyager dans les Airs, ou les Ballons. Jan de Farbus is the Challenger Learning Center and Sleepover Coordinator at the Museum of Flight. This book is from 1784, so I can understand most part of it. Uh, it's a very different style of writing. I would not write like that or even talk like that anymore. Uh, but it's, it's still pretty, pretty understandable. But before Jan takes a closer look at the artifact itself, let's check out the history it details. The Montgolfier brothers, well, they were Frenchmen. Like many people throughout history, they were interested in different types of flight. Catherine Hall is one of the Museum of Flight's docents. The story was that Lewis was thinking about the fact that Gibraltar could not was impenetrable as a fortress and he was sitting there thinking about it in front of a fire and he noticed that as the smoke rose a sheet nearby started moving also. The sheet catching the air currents from the fire inspired the brothers to try and harness that power and the hot air balloon was officially born. Of course, aviation didn't start with the Montgolfiers. In 1709, there's a documented acceptance that there was a paper balloon flown, and it was built by a Brazilian priest, and it went up to 13 feet high, just a hot air paper balloon. That's not accepted as the official first flight. And ballooning as a pastime and a scientific investigation didn't end with them either. The Robert brothers, they built scientific instruments, and they built a latex rubber, which had apparently been developed to make condoms, but way back then, they couldn't let it be known they made them, and so they used the latex to build a balloon. <laughs> But the impact the Montgolfiers had on aviation is crystal clear. 
to the point that their name has been embedded right into the French language. In French, we will not use hot air balloons or balloon. Now we call them montgolfières. Jan translated sections of the book out loud for me for this podcast. The Montgolfier brothers about the machines. So what Which, though the book has been in our collection for a long time, hasn't been done before. Meaning this may be the first time anyone has put these words into English for hundreds of years. And what you can see, like, at the end, like, on the observation side from the Mungoti brother, at the end, it's mentioned that everything is uh, including the Royal Academy of Sciences. So they are working on that and sending their results to the Royal Academy of Sciences. So they are trying to be super legit on a... On their process. The stories of early balloon flight are <laughs> simply delightful. It's amusing in a more than slightly condescending way to look back at those experiments and see that while the Montgolfiers were on the right track, their understanding of the science they were working with was completely wrong. I thought it was fascinating that they called it their Montgolfier gas and that the gas had the special properties in the smoke of levity. But at that time, they really liked to put a lot to create what we call black smoke uh, because they thought that the heavier the smoke would be, the, mo the higher the balloon would go. So that was the theory. It was not that hot air is lighter than cold air. It was bigger smoke. So they were creating big fires. They were putting rotten things in it to make it as black as possible. They believed when they started heating the air and getting the smoke, they used wool and hay because that would create more smoke. And that heavy smoke would also help to seal the fabric inside. There are also stories of the baby steps taken before putting the first humans into the sky. While today we have a pretty firm understanding of elevation and what's up there, in the 1700s people only had hypotheses as to what might happen if you floated a living creature even a few dozen feet off the ground. Where does the oxygen run out? Or maybe there's poison if you go up too high. Louis XVI viewed that very first flight where he allowed them, he wanted them to carry some criminals that had already been convicted, but they decided to send along a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. And the sheep had a name. His name was Montociel, which means rise to the sky in English. They assumed that the sheep was as close to the human constitution as they were willing to test. They knew that the duck could fly, so the duck just went along as to see if the duck had any problems while on the flight. It would mean the problem was, was with the balloon itself, since the duck should be able to save himself. They made it back alive, and they were honored the right to stay in the royal barn in Versailles. And watching that marvelous event at Versailles where, where King uh, Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette and a hundred thousand of their best friends. In other words, spectators. The book was published in 1784 in France. Now to give some context, the American Revolution had only officially ended that year with the signing of the Treaty of Paris. George Washington had not been elected the first president of the U.S. yet. That wouldn't happen until 1789, five years later. 
The U.S. Constitution hadn't even been written yet. The United States was still governed by the Articles of Confederation. Now, I'm no French history expert, but even I know in 1784, things in France were brewing. Revolution is in 89, so it's still a couple of years before. At that time, mainly society of farmers, not a lot of money, very poor actually, trying to make it. It's also Marie Antoinette. And they don't like it because she's Austrian and she's the enemy. So everything's kind of fomenting little by little. This means that the book has survived revolutions and uprisings and dictatorships and world wars before ending up on our shelves. Preserving a book like this is not easy. And the Museum of Flight's collection is a very open one, presenting its own unique challenges. As I've said before, we want people to come see what we have, even if it's not display. So we could take this book and lock it away and keep it safe, but our artifacts are worthless if they're not available to the public. We like nothing more than helping you find what you're interested in and kind of exploring that with you. I would much rather talk to someone and help in in a reference situation than catalog. So, if you were to call us up and say you wanted to come see this centuries-old book with your own eyes, we want to make sure you can do just that. Always, always err on the side of access and try not to limit the reasons why somebody wants to use an item. So, if somebody comes to the reading room and just says, I want to see the oldest book in your collection, and they only want to see it because it's the oldest book in the collection, and they have no kind of other research interest, we'll pull it out and show that book to that person. It's sparking an interest. It is a reason to look at something. Material is meant to be used, and and that's kind of the attitude that I'm I'm trying to take. Of course, always making sure the item materials protected. If we're overprotective, we might as well not exist. We're here to provide access to material and make sure that anyone can use and view and and take inspiration from our material or whatever. It's it's not really our judgment to make in terms of why they're interested in an item. We're here to we're here to provide access and and that's everyone from elementary school students all the way on up to your your most um, serious academic uh, researcher. But we need to make sure we take good care of our collection, books included, if we're going to be able to remain accessible, as this horror story from our supervisory librarian Chris's past when he worked for the National Library of New Zealand illustrates. A newspaper can be tricky. Newspaper uh, wasn't made to last, to put it bluntly. Um, It can be in in quite dreadful um, condition and is really, really difficult to preserve. In an effort to fill some gaps in a collection of a a local newspaper that we were interested in, I accepted a a donation of what seemed to be issues of that newspaper that would fill those gaps. It essentially crumbled in our hands. It just hadn't hadn't been cared for properly and it it couldn't even be opened. This is all made easier if a book or other artifact comes to the museum in already good condition. When we're talking to donors, we want, we like to get a, a good sense of the condition more so than almost anything else, especially with um, newspaper or, or kind of the periodical material, just because the condition of those items can certainly be um, be, problem- be problematic, um, but kind of condition above all else in many, in many ways. The donation that this book was a part of, however, was a bit of a different story. 
This title has an interesting history because it came to us um, from the Northrop Institute of, of Technology. So in that institute, I guess I guess it essentially folded um, at one point. Most of their library collection came here to us at the museum. So we have a, a great deal of material in the library that is stamped with, um, with Northrop Institute of Technology. Um, but when it came to us, I wasn't here for this. It came to us um, infested with silverfish which is a, an insect that likes old books um, and eats old books. So what we had to do was essentially rent a freezer in the shape of a trailer because it was that large of a collection. So what you do with silverfish is when you discover them, you need to freeze the item and then that kills the insect and any eggs and then basically shake that item out um, to get rid you know to get rid of the insects um, so we had to do that with the entire collection probably not something you expect to do when you go to librarian school a great portion of the library collection has come to us through through donations or through other institutions, aircraft manufacturers. So they come to us from a range of different places. Um, and sometimes they're in great shape. That's what we want. Sometimes they're not. You know, that we have all sorts of um, condition issues that we're dealing with in the library, one of which um, can be silverfish or, or other types of infestations. Sometimes material is, um, is moldy or, or mildewed. Um, sometimes it's just... It's been in a home with somebody who smoked and it, and it smells. So we're always kind of needing to evaluate condition of library items and see what we can do to mitigate um, that and, and kind of rescue the material. But sometimes we can't. And sometimes material, unfortunately, just has to be discarded because it's a danger to the, the rest of the collection or it's not in a good enough condition to preserve. Despite the somewhat tainted condition of the donation that brought us the French ballooning manual, once the process of removing the silverfish was complete, we found that this piece of history was still in remarkably good condition. I see an item that is in pretty darn good shape, even considering its age. Um, and it, and that's, it, it always strikes me how well preserved some of these books are compared to this is in better shape than books we get from like the 80s and 90s. This one also has been stained a little bit. Clearly um, so it has had a little bit of water damage or, or maybe even coffee. It's hard to tell. Easy to invoke a romantic image of someone in Paris in 1784 when it was published sipping coffee in a in a cafe somewhere. Absolutely, because th this does seem to me the type of, um, it's an adventure story to, to a certain extent. Telling You know, early ballooning was just, um, you know, I think really mind-boggling for folks and, and um, can totally see somebody reading this for pleasure and kind of just reveling in the, in the exploits of the Montgolfier brothers and, and the others that they, that they talk about. Mind-boggling indeed. To learn more about the context of the society that created this book, the people who might have been sitting in that cafe sipping coffee and devouring the knowledge on its pages... I turn to Dr. Jeff Ternofsky of the University of Washington. My background is early modern French cultural and literary history, I guess I'd say, sort of 17th and 18th centuries is really the focal areas. Jeff is an associate professor of French and specializes in the book culture of this era. But what's interesting is kind of liter the literary domain, the scientific domain, I think are much more intersecting in this period. You know, they're much more difficult to separate. And a lot of the great sort of literary texts from the 18th century you think of as the great works of the French Enlightenment, you know, are literary and scientific at the same time. I mean, the works of Voltaire, the works of Diderot, the works of Fontenelle. I mean, these are texts that are as interested in kind of literary expression and aesthetics as they are in kind of scientific knowledge. 
Books like the Ballooning Manual were in vogue at the time, acting as a sort of popular science magazine, but in book form. Very much fits into a kind of late 18th century fashion for scientific knowledge that was really oriented towards kind of a large public. This avis des éditeurs, this kind of little, very short preface written in the voice of the the editors in plural, because the publishers are les libraires qui vendent les nouveautés, it's all in plural. There isn't kind of one identified publisher here. You can see these the language that sort of speaks to the, both an appeal to, but speaks to the existence of this kind of pretty broad public for, you know, what is being presented as kind of rec- record of scientific discovery. So it begins, tout le monde parle des machines aerostatiques. Everyone's talking about this. This isn't presented as specialized knowledge. This is presented as a, a subject of wide curiosity. You know, these editors, they say, nous avons fait uh, en sorte de rédiger ce recueil de manière que les gens du monde. We made the effort to prepare this recueil, this kind of collection, such that gens du monde, and this is a very kind of coded term here, this speaks to kind of a fashionable public. You know, people of the world would be a literal translation, but it's kind of fashionable people uh, would be able to kind of understand more about this, you know, sublime découverte, the sublime discovery of, uh, of the balloon. The prevalence of these sorts of books begs the question, while today we consider this ballooning manual a rare book, was this a widely published livre? While circulation figures from the 18th century are understandably hard to come by, it turns out a trained eye can discern quite a bit from just looking at an artifact. From the very earliest dates of the way that printing technology developed in Europe, one didn't print one page at a time. One printed multiple pages on fairly large sheets of paper, and these sheets of paper were were then folded up and turned into books. And the number of pages per side of sheet would determine what the format is. So if you had two pages per side of sheet, so you'd have a total of four pages, you'd fold that once, that was called a folio. Uh, And those were kind of big books. They still existed throughout this period. Uh, They they become kind of luxury commodities. I mean, they use up a lot of paper. So in early printing, paper was always the most expensive input. Books that use lots of paper tended to be very expensive books. The more times you would fold it, the different format you would get. So if you folded it twice, that would create eight pages per sheet. That was called a quarto. If you folded it three times, that would be 16 pages per sheet. So you're printing eight pages on each side. Uh, That's called an octavo. Uh, And then they get smaller than that. The more you fold it, the smaller and smaller the book gets. As you fold it more often, you're creating a more mundane, commercialized commodity that you can sell for much cheaper in each in each case. And so this book is actually, you can just, you can look at the sort of signature markings, each signature's normally one sheet of paper that's been folded into X number of pages. And so here, each signature contains about 16 pages, or contains exactly 16 pages, I should say, uh, which means that this book is an octavo format. An octavo format, I would say, is a, it's a format that would be destined for a fairly large public. It's not the kind of luxury format that a folio or even a quarto might be. But at the same time, there are smaller formats, so it's not a completely cheap form of book. It's a book that calls some attention to itself as an object. This artifact reflects an excitement about the potential of ballooning, and a middle and upper class eager to fit in with the culture of knowledge. It's a sort of popularization of scientific knowledge, uh, and it very specifically says that. I mean works on this topic that are important for sciences are often too 
oriented towards savants, to specialists, and what we want to do is make it more interesting, but also serious. That they say we don't also want it to be too superficial and uninstructive. So we want it to be serious science, but marketed to a broad public of people who are interested in this stuff. Next time you get on a plane or see one fly over, remember what came before. So many trails were blazed through the skies long before Orville climbed into the cradle of the Wright Flyer on that fateful December day. The very first documented case of a woman in flight, her name was Elizabeth Tibet, and I love to use the story. She was dressed in her finery. She, she wore a beautiful white hat, and she was lifted off. She was in, the, of course, the balloon carrier. She lifted off, and as she rose into the sky, she was so thrilled that she burst into operatic aria. I like to tell people at the museum, I think there are a lot of pilots who the first time, the very first time they get to go up in an airplane and control that airplane, they'd probably like to burst into song too, because it's a thrilling, a thrilling thing to do. So many stories in aviation. So many people's experiences lay tucked away in the corners of our collection, just waiting for you to get curious enough to ask the question. And that's all it takes to unlock our archives. Curiosity. We have a whole range of researchers, everyone from middle middle school students working on National History Day projects, uh, all the way up to, um, we've had the official historian of the United States Air Force doing, doing research with us, uh, artists, model makers, folks who are writing histories of certain aircraft and, and, and the like. It really is a whole range. Unlike some libraries that might focus more on, on serious researchers or that sort of thing, we don't require more than an interest in, in aviation and, and accessing our material. Depending on your level of exposure to libraries, even what kind of librarian you had in elementary school, you might be intimidated is, is probably the, a fair word to use, nervous. Um, I, I, all I can say is that we, we spend a lot of time and resources on, on caring for this collection and making it accessible in all sorts of different ways. And there's nothing better than when we get to find something and bring it out to a real live human. And that's exactly what they need. There, there's no better feeling in the world as a librarian than, than kind of going through that reference process and, and, and finding exactly what you need. So come on in, explore. You never know what you'll uncover. As a historian, I spent a lot of time in the archives, uh, definitely, but I worked on World War I, so the oldest documents I hold in my hands were from 1914 to 1918. This is uh, 1784, so a little bit, you know, proud, it's my history. I have the impression the art of hot air balloon is disappearing, sadly. We don't talk very often about it, we don't see them very often except some festival here and there. That's kind of interesting to go back to the source of it and see that it was the first basically flying machine. I mean, except kites, uh, but where you could put people in it and fly. And we, it's a, a history that is a little bit forgotten, especially with now all the, you know, cool airplanes that are coming with technology. And well, this is how it started. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Flight Deck, the podcast of the Museum of Flight in Seattle, Washington. Particular thanks to those who've been able to support the museum and this podcast financially during the epidemic at museumofflight.org podcast. This mini-series would literally not have happened without your support. This episode marks the finale of our four-part collections mini-series. If you haven't had a chance to listen to the previous episodes, you can find them on the podcast feed, and I'll have links to the individual episodes in the show notes. I've had so many wonderful comments come my way about these four episodes, and they have been really meaningful. It's been a tough few months for for everybody, myself included, and I, I have really appreciated the positivity and and the stories that you've shared about listening to the episodes and also some stories that you've shared just related to something that was talked about uh, that you've experienced in your own life. Now, the interviews for these episodes were extensive, and there was some really interesting stuff that came up in those discussions that just didn't fit into the four episodes of the miniseries. So at one point in the near future, I plan on putting out a bits and pieces episode with just clips from the interviews that were interesting but they just didn't fit uh, into an episode so keep your eyes open for that we've talked a lot about access to our collection in this episode and in the previous episodes of this miniseries and this is true uh, we are a collection here for the public many of these interviews as you might have guessed were recorded before the covid 19 pandemic closed down our museum campus and museum campuses across the world but this doesn't mean that we don't want you to be curious and ask us questions it just means that we've changed some of how we do things you can find a lot of amazing artifacts from the museum from the comfort of your home in our digital collection and there's a link to that digital collection in the show notes And while you can't drop into the library or research center right now, we hope that you can do that in the near future, you can still send your questions and research requests to our collections team. You might not get an answer right away, and the answer might just be, hey, we got your request, Uh, we can't get to what you need right now, so we'll we'll just have to wait until we're open to get this to you. Uh, But don't let any of that stop you. If you want to learn about something, then by all means, let us help you. You can find more information on all that in our show notes at museumofflight.org podcast. I'm hoping now to return to the every other week release schedule since we're going to be reverting back to a more traditional episode format, but I can't promise anything. At the very least, we'll have a new episode every month. That I can say. And there might be months where we have two episodes every other week, and there might be some months where we only have one. It just depends on so many factors, uh, and I, I really appreciate your patience. The easiest way to get these new episodes is to subscribe to the podcast, which you can do on your favorite podcast app or through our website at museumofflight.org slash podcast. Please rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcasting app. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone. Share this mini-series. Maybe they'll enjoy it as well. You can contact the show at podcast at museumofflight.org. 
Until next time, this is your host, Sean Mobley, saying to everyone out there on that good earth, we'll see you out there, folks.